Miss the show, no worries on point and on the podcast. A top-ranking female officer quits the Canadian military in disgust, saying the scope of the problem has yet to be exposed. We'll talk about the mass shooting in Atlanta. It's being blamed on anti-Asian racism, yet the evidence doesn't point to that being the motive. Facts matter, but what are they? And the two Michaels are heading to trial in China starting Friday. Those trials never end in anything but conviction. What does that mean for the fate of these men? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? Everyone sees the exhaustion within the city as it relates to all the limitations COVID-19 has forced upon us. This is understandable and inevitable. This is why modest steps forward in the realm of outdoor activity are a good proving ground at this time. We aren't taking steps forward at all. We're moving backwards, upside down, and likely heading back into a much stricter predictable lockdown. The party pooper medical officers of health keeping us in a gray zone, soon to be back in black, and uh, continuing to deliver bad news while trying to convince us that, you know, keeping us locked down, that's for our own good, you know. I mean, we're not locked down officially yet, but you know it's coming. Because if Dr. Davila was, you know, you think about it, three weeks ago, she talked about the most concerned she has ever been. That was three weeks ago. So her hair has got to be on fire right now with this third wave. And yet time again, you know, the measures they take don't work. And we're not going to get rid of cases. And these measures are, are literally crushing us slowly or maybe quickly these days, especially those in the hospitality industry that just keep missing out on these massive money-making opportunities. And this is a second year for bars and restaurants to miss out on something that is so, so important to their bottom line. And I've talked to a lot of people, and I I don't know how much buy-in they're going to get if there is this third lockdown that we're being told about. Because for, for those of us in the GTA in Toronto who have been in the longest lockdown, this is just this is just getting obnoxious. I mean, people are at a breaking point. You know, you see right around the country, people are kind of like, well, relax, just go into lockdown. And it's like, well, unless you've been where we are, you kind of don't really understand the fatigue that goes along with it. And there is a lot of fatigue. Boy, oh boy. And you may recall, you know, looking back, I mean, it was last year, like kind of on this day, you know, the officials all of a sudden panicked. They realized, oh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't have a parade. Maybe that would be dangerous gathering millions of people together. But like every decision that we've seen in the last year, the experts just wait too long, you know? And then they put in measures that just don't make sense. But that's the kind of day it's been. It's been actually a really busy news day. Um, we just got news in the last couple of hours that, uh, and this is bad news, uh, China will be putting the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, on trial this Friday and this Monday. And these are one-day trials, and they always end in conviction. So this is really troubling news. We're going to talk about the game at play with these, uh, you know, at these men at their expense uh, tonight because there are important meetings tomorrow with the Biden administration with China, and they might be using this as a, a strategy 
But no question, these guys are being used as pawns in a very dangerous uh, game. And, and no question, this is not good news because if they're convicted, which they will be, it makes it much, much, much more difficult to get them back into this country. So we'll talk about that in the show. I do want to talk about this mass shooting that we woke up to uh, that happened in Atlanta. I mean, it's a horrific shooting. Eight are dead. Many of them, as you know by now, uh, throughout the news that you've been hearing, are young Asian women. And a lot of people are stating, you know, this is a race-related hate crime. And that may yet turn out to be. Uh, but we don't have those facts to state that. So I don't think we should. Uh, and what we know so far from police is that the shooter had a sex addiction. We know he frequented these parlors. We know that he told police uh, that he wanted to kill these people to stop the temptation. What we don't know for certain is why these women were specifically targeted. But here is the Atlanta police with what they knew at the time. The suspect did uh, take responsibility for the shootings. Um, he uh, said that early on once we began the interviews with him. Um, he claims that these, and as the chief said, we know this is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated. He apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a, a, a sex fiction, and sees these locations as something that allows him to, to, um, to go to these places, and, and it's a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. There you go. So that's what they know. And do you believe the guy, the killer? I don't know. I mean, we'll find out in time. I'm sure there's a manifesto lying around somewhere, but we haven't yet seen that. Um, and, and it's absolutely fair to argue that COVID has fueled increased attacks and, and a lot of ignorance to those in the Asian community. But uh, the sad reality, and certainly when I, when I heard about the shooting and who the target was, these establishment, uh, when it comes to these kinds of sex uh, parlors, these massage parlors, a lot of women working at them are often Asian or even Russian. And they're often marginalized women who have either just arrived in North America, you know, when they're vulnerable, they are easily recruited into sex trafficking because they have little family, they have uh, a little way to communicate, they don't have a community or anyone looking out for them. I mean, you can look back at uh, a couple of our big killing sprees where we see that the killers uh, preyed upon those who are marginalized. Because those people are easy targets. You look at the, the Robert Picton uh, case as an example. You could look at the Bruce MacArthur case as an example. They knew who to center in on. But, you know, a lot of times we create these narratives before we've got all the facts. And then the false narrative takes over from what the real conversation uh, we should be having, which is, you know, unless a woman is doing and working in the sex trade by choice, how can we better protect them? How do we stop these women from being lured and trapped into this life of sexual slavery? And we can have the conversation about increased racism in the Asian community, but until we have the facts to back it up, we just can't state that as the motive for this particular carnage. And there's a saying in this business, you know, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Well, stories like this are, you know, too important to get wrong. And... Facts don't care about your feelings. So I think, you know, we've got to let the facts come out uh, before we come up with a story. And we'll learn in time. We, no question about it. We will. Um, but it's just not a stated fact at this point. Stay with us. Alex Pearson on point. And this is Global News Radio. Pretty stunning revelations as we learn Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor has uh, resigned her post effective immediately as a senior military officer and also an Afghan war vet. 
And to suggest that our military is in crisis, I think, would be an understatement. This is a high-ranking officer who was a deputy commander of 36 Canadian Brigade Group. And she has to be released because of what she says is a failure of its leadership to deal with sexual misconduct. And she's told our Mercedes Stevenson, quote, I'm sickened by ongoing investigations of sexual misconduct among our key leaders. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised. I'm also certain that the scope of the problem has yet to be exposed. Colonel Michel Drapeau, who is with Michel Drapeau Law Office, this is the first established private law firm to practice in military law, joins us. And Colonel, the you know, the fact that an officer of this caliber has quit, it's safe to say that it's not a small thing. No, it's not. Uh, it remind, reminds me when I did almost the same a number of years ago at the height of the Somalia crisis in D&D when I was executive secretary of national defense. And I decided, in fact, on 30 days notice to leave because, frankly, I couldn't take it anymore. And, and that's what's happening. A number of, of officers in good standing, first class, people who've got potential uh, to, uh, to go all the way, which we need, desperately need as leaders, and they're sickened by it. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, if she was, uh, you know, followed by a number of others. Others may not make a statement on their early release, but they will leave. And also a significant, uh, a number of would-be recruits uh, would decide, in fact, to go into a different career path because they don't feel that the military, in fact, is such a fertile place uh, to uh, to exploit their talent and, and to provide their services uh, to, to, to the country. So they, they will be a crisis in recruiting and a crisis in retention, uh, which are a subset of a crisis in leadership. Yeah, I mean, she was um, she felt hopeful when Operation Honor, uh, which was brought in by a retired General Vance, was put together because she felt that it was going to bring a stop to these allegations of sexual misconduct. Now she says it's been poisoned by the leadership and she she describes the damage as being quite grievous. And it is. I mean, she's absolutely right. In one sense, I think she's doing um, the uh, the profession, the military professions. Uh, a favor in speaking out, in telling us the impact it has on her, uh, people with her, her, her values and uh, her capacity and capabilities and so on and so forth uh, are just incompatible with what's happening down the forces. So it drives the point home that we need to have a cultural shift and the sooner the better. And the last thing we need is a cosmetic change. We don't need somebody else to be stepping in and receive a mandate from the department uh, to fix it. This fix has to be done, has to be controlled outside the Defense Department. Too often in crisis past, during the Somalia inquiry, or as a result of Madame Deschamps' report, we turned the matter back to the military, asked them to fix it. That's how Operation Honor came about. With it turned out to be an utter failure. We've seen this in my own practice, of how much of a failure it was. So it has to be, we have to bring new blood, do in fact a, a complete uh, overhaul of the, of the senior staff, the political uh, functionaries and the military leaders in place. We have to go to a younger generation, uh, people who think and act and lead in quite a different fashion. And, uh, and trust them, in fact, with the cleaning up and the change of culture and to bring about a disciplined organization. That's what we need. And we need this 
desperately mm -hmm. before Canada is asked once again to deploy forces abroad, more particularly into a peacekeeping mission where we will have men and women in uniform serving in some some poor country somewhere, uh, having an indigenous population that looks to the military from the first world country to provide them with uh, with advice, with support, with uh, uh, with law and orders and so on and so forth. And we want to make sure that every one of those Canadian who carries the Canadian flag on the patch on their uniform is lives up to standard and is capable, in fact, to uphold our values abroad as they do in Canada. I say abroad because once deployed, there is no civilian control on our part and there is no oversight. They're on their own. And uh, at the moment, I don't think I'd be one that would recommend the deployment of Canadian forces materials or personnel, I should say, uh, with the kind of leadership abroad. You know, for, for an officer like this to, to, to quit essentially so suddenly um, and not try to fight for change, you know, I think most people would look at her and say, why couldn't she make the change within as a woman? Does that tell you that we probably haven't heard the worst? No, we haven't. And I don't think it was sudden. I, I think it took a long time. I mean, she herself hinted that she might herself have been a victim of some some form of sexual misconduct along the way and would not have spoken out and would not have reported. I mean, if I understand her message correctly, uh, but uh, she's strong enough of a character that she's now totally disappointed, disenchanted by the absolute failure by the top leadership absolute failure to take responsibility, to take action, to bring about the correction required, and to add themselves subject to so many allegations is disheartening. Uh, the uh, Lieutenant Colonel is, in fact, a civilian, means that she has a civilian life and, and professions alongside, so she can afford to turn the page and to say, I'm going to devote my resource, energy, and talents to do something else. But I think she's uh, she's leading the pack, uh, and that's why she's such a good leader. Uh, she's speaking forcefully, uh, openly, and uh, her message has to be listened to very carefully and needs to be acted upon, not by the military, not yeah. by the military, by, by the political forces in the country, those who are trusted with uh, putting civil control and civil oversight over the military. I'm alluding to parliament. I'm alluding to cabinet. And at mm -hmm. the moment, they have been uh, uh, silent would be a charitable way to put it. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, those are the people who had a chance three years ago to listen and they seem to have looked away. So that leadership uh, also remains in question. Colonel, I guess we'll see what the next chapter of this story tells us, but no question about it. There is a real um, crisis within our military ranks, and I appreciate your um, perspective on it. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Many, many thanks. That is a Colonel Michel Drapeau, who is now in military law and watches this very carefully. So we will uh, wait and see what Mercedes Stevenson brings to the table next. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. The suspect was on his way to Florida, I believe. Um, and perhaps to carry out additional shooting. So again, uh, it really speaks to the coordination and the quick response from law enforcement. For as tragic as this was on yesterday in Metro Atlanta, this could have been uh, significantly uh, worse. So here is what we know to be fact right now, um, that a white gunman killed eight people in three area massage parlors in Atlanta. Seven of them were women, six were Asian, 
And as you heard from Atlanta's mayor who spoke of this, um, the shooter had planned to carry out more killings in different states. And we have not yet seen uh, the shooter's manifesto, should there be one. So we can't say with certainty that he was targeting a specific race. We will learn in time, certainly, the motive. Um, And we can say through his statements to police that the plan of attack seemed to be going after those in the, quote, porn industry, as he had uh, suggested. And when you look at the historical data um, of, you know, these suspects, they often have a history of violence against women. And the sad reality when it comes to these kinds of massage parlors or these parts of the sex trade, uh, these women can generally be very vulnerable, uh, new to the country, and so they become very easy prey to those intent on committing evil. I want to bring Tamara Cherry into this conversation, creator of Pickup Communications, also the author of All the Bumpy Pebbles. This is a book about the sex trade, how it works, sex trafficking, and can certainly give you insight from uh, directly from victims of it. She joins us now. Good to have you, Tamara. Good to be here, Alex. So I, I picked up the phone and called you because I wanted to bounce some ideas because when I heard about this, race did not come to mind for me. What came to mind was, here's a guy either who hates women um, but knows that he could get in, get um, you know, get access and do as much carnage and damage as he could because, let's be honest, these women are very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I saw the news reports first this morning, um, I wasn't so much taken aback by the fact that it was a bunch of women or that the, they were of Asian descent, uh, descent. I was taken aback by the media coverage of this immediately going to the fact that this guy seemed to be targeting the Asian community in particular, when there didn't seem to be any clear evidence of that, except for the fact, obviously, that uh, that the victims were, by and large, Asian. Um, but I was very disheartened to see in the absence of facts, in the absence of any fact about motive, before the police had their news conferences this morning, disputing this speculation, that there were so many mainstream media outlets that immediately went to that. I just, I thought it was irresponsible and dangerous and um, needlessly taking away from the trauma that is being suffered today by by all the survivors of this, this mass violence. And it also stops um, an important conversation, which is, you know, comes to mind of, okay, how can we further protect these women? Women who often, you know, if they choose to be in the sex trade, that is their right, that is their choice. But a lot of times it isn't their choice. And so I think it stops a conversation of how do we protect these women from getting kind of enslaved to a life of, of you know, that they might not want to be living. Yeah, it's interesting. The The whole focus on race in this narrative today, it really started taking things toward coronavirus and the fact that the Asian community has had such an awful year this past year with with stereotypes, with people attacking them uh, because of this global pandemic. And they've, they've had, don't get me wrong, they've had an awful year. The narrative has, has not gone towards the survivors and the fact that so many of the women in the are exploited. Now, I don't know what the situations of the women uh, in these massage parlors were. Were they there of their own free will? Uh, were they being paid or giving their money over to pimps or traffickers? Um, you know, were they in the sex trade because they wanted to? We don't know. So that is an important conversation to have. I just don't think that we should be diving into any of these issues 
in the absence of facts, which 20 hours, and like we're a little more than 24 hours in, and there has there has been so much speculation about why this happened, and uh, I said I think it's it's irresponsible and it's dangerous. Yeah, we're getting a little digitization on your end, so if you can um, maybe just kind of move to a window, we might get you a bit clearer. But uh, I think you raise a good point. The other thing is um, we may never know uh, what happened. We may never know the true reason other than what this guy told the police um, as to what happened. And so there will be speculation. It doesn't make it fact, though. Yeah, exactly. You raise a very good point. I think that something that happens, especially in incidents of mass violence, is that we jump into speculating. Um, immediately, the media will go into who was it that committed this? Why did they commit it? How can we stop it from happening again? Often within hours of it happening, we've seen it happen time and time again with so many incidents of mass violence in the U.S. And I think that it's because we're trying to rationalize what are quite often irrational acts. I had a homicide investigator tell me several years ago, and I'll never forget the conversation. He said, don't try to rationalize irrational behavior. We had been having a conversation about a man who had killed his family. And I, I was telling him, I just cannot wrap my head around this. How could anybody ever do this to his wife and to his kids? He said, don't try to rationalize irrational behavior. So when something like this happens, it is so unspeakable, so unthinkable that we're, we're desperate to find answers. Oh, he did it because he was racist. He did it because he was a misogynist. It might have been either or both of those things, or it might have been something else altogether. But I think that we think that by jumping into these answers right away, it will make it easier for us to wrap our heads around these unthinkable situations. And those answers may come. They may come through the court process. Uh, they may come before that, or they may never come. I, I don't think that we ever truly get the satisfaction that we're after when it comes to these things, because even if, you know, there's a manifesto and we, we hear all about it, so I'm not a proponent of, of spreading that, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't think that you can ever really get satisfaction when eight people have lost their lives, when eight webs of family mm -hmm. members and communities and, and other loved ones are hurting and whose lives are forever changed because of this. I don't think we'll ever get satisfaction like, oh, okay, that makes sense why somebody would do that. We're never gonna, it's never going to be sensical because it's not normal, rational behavior. But I think that we just dive into it because it's, it's human nature to try to make sense of these nonsensical situations. And certainly it's going to be a big investigation because, you know, if, if you go off police reports, this person was going to be going to other states to create as much carnage as he could. There was something about the, the sex industry um, that he had targeted. But the bottom line is to prevent the next one, we, ha we owe it uh, to make sure the facts come out so that we can try to stop the next one. Absolutely. I think that we need to make sure the facts come out. But that's the key word, facts. We can't be speculating in the absence of facts. And I know it can be frustrating. I know people want answers right away. But sometimes we need to let these investigations run their courses. Um, and journalists can, by all means, investigate as well. But this morning, what I saw was jumps to speculation and a lot of major media outlets saying, we don't know what the motive was, but we're going to get this organization, this organization and this organization to comment on it, basically suggesting that the motive was race, for example, um, or misogyny or whatever. Any act against any community, uh, race, gender, whatever is unspeakable, especially when it, it ends in eight lives being ended. Um, but we can't be so quick to, to jump to, to speculation in the absence of facts. We need to let these things run their courses and, um, and not report things until we, until we know what happens. 
Not to mention, you don't want to create a scenario of a copycat. Exactly. And that was actually going to be my next point. So in these incidents of mass violence, a lot of uh, research has been done on the fact that these, there, there can be this media contagion effect where there might be other men out there, and it is by and large men who, who commit these acts of mass violence, who are thinking, gee, nobody knew who that guy was until he went and he killed eight people. Mm-hmm. You know, he was nobody. You know, there's one mass killer that I, I quoted uh, not too long ago um, in, in regards to the Toronto van attack who had said um, nobody knew who that guy was until he went and, out and killed people. It's, it's as if the more people, the more blood you shed, the more famous you become. And that's what a lot of these guys are after. I don't know if that was the case in this one. This guy certainly doesn't seem to be following the same narrative uh, as, as some other mass killers. Um, but we, I think that we can be reporting the facts without, for example, ta- saying his name or showing his picture. Just swap it out for, for um, a pseudonym and still report all the facts. You can, you can tell us about his life and everything like that, but only report the relevant stuff. We don't need to be looking at all the facts on the table and drawing a line from point A to point B to D to F to X. You know, make sure that those lines that we're drawing are based in facts. Um, I think in, in the age of, you know, 24-hour media, breaking news and, and all the competition and, and, you know, it's a desperate time for the media. I totally understand that. Sometimes the facts can slip away because we're trying to fill the voids of information. You know what? There's a lot to talk about today because there's a lot of trauma that's been suffered. There's been eight lives that have been lost. It's been 24 hours. We don't need to be jumping into the why did this happen yet. Let's, let's think for a minute about the people that are suffering today. Make sure that they're getting the support that, they, that they're needing. Um, trust that the investigators are working up those facts and that journalists, that great journalists, are also digging behind the scenes to, to get those facts for us and then let them bring them to us in a way that won't further traumatize those survivors and won't mm-hmm. fuel uh, copycats, as you said. Well said. Interesting perspective. Tamara, appreciate you joining us. My pleasure as always, Alex. Have a good night. Tamara Cherry joining us uh, with another perspective on this, and she is author of All the Bumpy Pebbles, if you're interested in reading uh, more about sex trafficking and that whole industry. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. Troubling developments coming out of China with news that the government is going ahead with trials for both the two Michaels within days. Of course, uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig are accused of spying and have now been locked up for 829 days. But we know their kidnapping is, of course, in retaliation for the 2018 arrest of Huawei exec uh, Meng Wanzhou, who's wanted by U.S. authorities. Now, one of the trials is said to start Friday, the other Monday, and these trials only ever end in conviction. So what does this mean for these men? Will we ever get them back to Canada? Or is this all just a game of, um, you know, some kind of negotiation tactic for China? Charles uh, Burton joining us. He's a professor of political science at Brock University. He specializes in government and politics, uh, Canada-China relations, and of course was one-time counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China. Good to have you, Charles. It's great to speak with you. All right, so we knew that this was coming because we got a hint of it last week from the Chinese propaganda uh, media. What does um, this tell you? Well, it is an opportunity for some movement on this file. I mean, as you say, undoubtedly, uh, the two men will both be uh, convicted of serious crimes. Uh, We won't know what the sentence is right away. They typically take uh, weeks or months to come down with a sentence. But it does seem to be connected to the meeting tomorrow in Anchorage, Alaska, 
between the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, the uh, National Security Advisor, Jake uh, Sullivan, and their Chinese counterparts, Wang Yi and Yang Jiechir, um, you know, in which it's the first face-to-face meeting of senior officials of the Biden administration with senior officials of the Chinese Communist Party. And mm-hmm. I dare say that there will be a lot of discussion of many, many things, including the U.S. dropping the charges against Meng Wanzhou. So, you know, scheduling the trial and announcing it the day before the meeting occurs in Alaska, I don't think is coincidental. I think it's because the Chinese are, as you say, in trying to engage in some negotiation to get Ms. Meng out of, out of Canada and back to Beijing. And the Biden administration has signaled to the Trudeau government that they will help uh, try to push this, um, you know, this issue. Um, and so how do you see it working? out? Do you see the Biden administration negotiating some kind of release of Meng Wanzhou? And, um, you know, that that gets into some also murky uh, waters. Are we going to be doing like what 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 they would call like a hostage swap? Well, I, I mean, I, even though know, she's not a hostage, Chinese would see it as a hostage swap, of course, uh, no, we're, we're yeah. not uh, trying to consider the Hmong matter as, uh, as, as a political matter, but as a judicial matter. But, uh, you know, the U.S. has already broached the idea of there being um, some kind of, uh, of deal whereby Huawei and Hmong would um, accept that they uh, did what they did. Uh, some sort of penalty like a large fine against Huawei would be, enact- would be enacted and then Miss Mung would be um, free to go. Uh, otherwise, you know, she goes to the States, uh, she faces a long sentence, possibly does a plea bargain where she says things that the Chinese government would not like her to say about the relationship between Huawei and Chinese military and security. So China certainly doesn't want her to be extradited, and I think they will um, you know, pull out all stops to prevent that. Uh, what sort of concessions they would make to the United States beyond the release of Culverkin's favor um, remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, these two poor men are, are just being used as pawns in a pretty dangerous game. What kind of consular support? I mean, they have not exactly given um, the government of Canada much notice on this, albeit the, the Trudeau government must have been getting an inkling of this from last week's media reports out of China. But what kind of consular support would they be getting? Well, um, you know, this will give an opportunity for Canadian consular officials to see them um, before the trial. That's fairly common. Uh, they should have some sort of access to a lawyer. Um, it's possible the Chinese will allow uh, one Canadian consular official to attend the trial, which I would estimate would not be more than a day, probably half a day. But, um, you know, the press won't be allowed to see it. And and because China says it's a national security matter, the details of the charges and so on will, will not be made public. I mean, obviously, if it was any reasonable court with any reasonable judge, he'd look at it and say, oh, well, there's no evidence here. Let them go. That's not what's going to happen. We'll be told that they engaged in serious crimes of espionage unspecified and are given so many years of, uh, of, uh, of imprisonment as a result. But it's um, it is within reason to think that China is going to use these men, um, you know, obviously to their advantage, but to to maximize and to make a very clear message, not just to other allies of ours, to Australia, of how far they're willing to go to get their way. Um, so if China doesn't get what it's want, it wants. Uh, these these two men are are in are in real serious trouble. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you would have thought that rationally the Chinese government would recognize that it didn't work. The hostage diplomacy has not managed to spring Ms. Meng. You know, she she has uh, further court proceedings coming up. The case should be wrapped up about May, but it's uh, unlikely that, you know, that she will be able to convince uh, Justice Holmes that she shouldn't be extradited to the United States, at which time appeals will will occur. So, you know, it would make sense for the Chinese government to, to do roughly what they did with Kevin Garrett, is to hold the sham trial and then mm-hmm. declare that out of clemency, they're going to let Colbert's favor return to Canada um, without serving the sentence. Uh, that would be, you know, highly desirable if they want to try and re-engage with Canada in normal relations. But uh, I'm not sure that the Chinese government is quite that rational. No, not by a long shot. So if tomorrow's talks don't go um, well, um, and, and as you say, we won't get a lot of details. I mean, it's it's not like all of a sudden Friday these men will be released. I mean, what what's the reality that we're looking at in the next little while? Even if uh, Mr. Biden puts pressure, the administration puts pressure, that, that doesn't guarantee that, that the, the men will be sent back to Canada. No, I mean, that's quite true. I mean, best case scenario is, you know, Favors trial occurs on Friday and Colbrick occurs on Monday, and uh, you know, after a few days, they're they're put on a on a flight back to Canada. Um, you know, it's a possibility, and certainly the the one that we'd like to see, because the Chinese have got assurances from the from the United States that Meng will be allowed to return to Beijing. But uh, you know, what's more likely is that the trial will take place. They'll be found guilty. We won't know what the sentence is. And then we just go back to where we are now, where they're where they're languishing in prison under miserable conditions, with no sort of, you know, clear timeline as to when this thing is going to be resolved, one way or another. God, you can only imagine what those families and and these men are going through. It's just uh, yeah. it's inconceivable uh, to think what they're going through, being uh, just totally caught in a situation not of their making. It's disgraceful, you know, and and our, our I don't think our government has done enough to to express to the Chinese regime how really appalling this whole matter is and that, you know, that Canada just cannot put up with it. Yeah, and certainly by the public polling, and you've seen it, Canadians are very much in tune with this case and certainly uh, want China to uh, to to be uh, either punished or for Canada to change relations with that country. And so it's not like Canadians aren't paying attention and... Uh, Certainly won't like this development. Always appreciate your time, Charles. So I, uh, I guess we'll be probably chatting in the next couple of days, and we'll keep our eye on what happens over the next uh, few weeks. Yes, I think so. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is Charles Burton joining us. And so we wait now and see what happens. You, of course, could join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.